When I was 10 years old, a little booklet made its way around the whole country, starting in pastor's studies. 300,000 or something were mailed out to individual pastors, and the book was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Come in 1988. Does anyone remember this? I remember this. At 10 years old, I remember hearing about it. It was on the news. It was a phenomenon. My parents, I think, were not entirely off board. They, they had read it, and my pastor at the time had read it and said, I mean, no one can know the day or the hour, but it all seems to check out. And I remember being really freaked out. This was the kind of eschatology, meaning doctrine of the end times, that was very prevalent in the church I was raised in. And this kind of vibe was kind of having a moment where you'd say, oh, hold on, I've done the math. Well, as the day approached Rosh Hashanah of 1988, I remember my parents being a little cagey, but also being very careful to talk to me and my sister about stuff that was happening tomorrow and next week, and hey, let's make some plans for the week after, because they wanted to make sure that we didn't think that they were doomsday people. And now we didn't worry about it. I mean, obviously we were all believers and ostensibly should have been excited about the return of Christ, but it was often in that cultural setting couched in very kind of dramatic, scary stuff. You know, guillotines on the back of you know, golf carts. And you've seen the movies. So when, when my mom came into my room at a weird time that night, like after she'd said goodnight, but before I'd fallen asleep and said, oh, hey, what about if we go to Pizza Hut tomorrow? I remember thinking that's it. That's it for all of us. I'm talking Wormwood, the star from space that's going to poison all the water. I'm reading the book of Revelation in my, my stonewashed denim Bible. Well, the rapture did not happen. Jesus did not return at that time. And I am thankful for the way my parents wanted to remind me that should Jesus tarry, we can count on being able to plan for tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. He will be there. He will be with us. He is in every tomorrow. I think we see Jesus himself doing something sort of similar here in this passage. Now, we are in the fourth week of Easter. He is risen. And you might wonder why, then, we have a text that takes place on Maundy Thursday. That's all the sad stuff. That's all the, the darkness. And, of course, Easter is supposed to be about the happy stuff, the triumphant stuff, the empty tomb, nothing but light. And yet, I think it's a great text for Easter. It's one that you find in the three-year lectionary for Eastertide, because Jesus, as he is before his crucifixion, which is before his resurrection, as he is comforting and preparing his disciples, he's also pointing forward, pointing ahead, pointing beyond not only the crucifixion, but beyond his resurrection, beyond his ascension to something coming way down the road, which is Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about this thing that's going on down there, and maybe that will give you some comfort that the dark times ahead are temporary. They'll be, in his words, just a little while. And when he does that, it implies, it assumes that his victory over sin and Satan at the cross and his victory over death at the empty tomb are a foregone conclusion, as of course they were, because our Lord is the Lord of life. But Jesus does not gloss over the troubles and the struggles and the darkness that his disciples are going to face. Not in the least. 
He says, you will run away. You will abandon me. He tells them beforehand exactly what will happen. He tells one guy, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Specifics. You know, we sometimes play these hypothetical games of if you could get in a DeLorean and go back in time and tell your younger self one thing, what would you tell them? This is the thing that they would tell, right? Listen, on the night that Jesus betrayed, you are going to do something shameful and fearful. You're going to run. But they didn't have to go back and tell themselves. Jesus tells them, and still they do it. The sad thing is that in many ways, this is the climax of their time with Jesus, at least till this point. And their time with Jesus physically is, is coming to a close. This road they'd begun walking three and a half years earlier, following Jesus as their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, their Savior. So much of it had been preparing them for this moment, while Jesus knew at this moment they would drop the ball. He prepared them, and yet they were still unprepared in this pivotal place. Well, in this little pep talk then, Jesus speaks to them about two things, and both of them are comforting. And both of them are things they could think back on during the dark times, and it would give them some hope. He talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he talks about a joy that no one can steal from them. First, the Holy Spirit, we'll skip that because we're Baptists. Um, I'm kidding. Yeah, I've heard it said that Baptists don't talk about the Holy Spirit, and it may be true in some cases we don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit, although I think we need to ask the question, why did the Holy Spirit come? Why is the Holy Spirit sent into our midst? What was it that Jesus was promising? I think if you went to the average person on the street or maybe even the average person in the pew, they would paint a picture of the Spirit bringing chaos, right? Well, if you've got the Spirit, that means people are jumping up and shouting things in the middle of the service, kind of out of order, or you got the guy on TV with his jacket whacking people and they fall down. You've got people laughing uncontrollably or braying like donkeys. I mean, this stuff happens, flopping around on the ground, and we go, okay, maybe we just forget the whole thing because we don't want to be associated with that. Well, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, of course. But remember that the Holy Spirit is who gives us or cultivates in us the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And so if, if someone describes the work of the Holy Spirit in a way where if you've got self-control, you're not giving in to the Spirit, they're 180 degrees off. We know our, our God is a God of order and not chaos, and we're told that specifically in the context of the worship service itself. In fact, if you have a spirit in you that makes you lose self-control, pretty sure you got a demon, right? I mean, that's something we'll want to, to deal with. That's what demons do in the gospel. They throw people down, they're flopping around, they throw them into the fire, make them say things they don't want to say. The spirit is not possessing you, but indwelling you. And that is an important distinction, I think. So if that's what we mean when we say Baptists don't talk about the Holy Spirit, then good, because that's not the picture the scriptures give us of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I'm not dogging on any tradition. We have uh, Resplendor de Gloria, a Pentecostal Spanish-speaking church that meets here three times a week, wonderful Christian people, and they are Pentecostal, charismatic, gifts of the Spirit, and it's not the chaos and the sensationalism it's, it's very much rooted in the scripture. I'm not, I'm not uh, picking on anybody particularly. I think we just want to be careful about understanding why it is Jesus sends 
the Spirit. And if we want to know, we can find passages like this where he actually tells us. But, you know, even when there are not the, the kind of sensationalist, swinging from the chandelier kind of pictures uh, in our mind, even in more low-key, laid-back churches and Christian settings, you still can find Christians expecting the Spirit to bring some level of chaos into their life, right? Like, if you're really in tune with the Holy Spirit, things will happen to you like you'll wake up in the morning, quit your job, buy a kayak, and just kayak to Venezuela or something. Without thinking it through, just you've got to do something kind of impulsive, something that is dangerous, that's a little bit crazy, or you're not really listening to the Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit is that wacky friend you had in college who says, let's blow off class today and drive to the Grand Canyon. The Spirit also is not pictured that way for us in the Scriptures. I've often heard it said, too, that when you give in to the Spirit, He will push you out of your comfort zone. Now that one, I think I can get on board with, depending on what we mean. The Great Commission is our mission as the church, and it often means stepping out of where you're strictly comfortable and doing something that you have to do in faith and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and share the gospel with this person. I'm scared, but God, you give me the strength and the courage I need. There is scriptural precedent for this, of course. We see the Ethiopian eunuch going by, and God says to Philip through the Spirit, hey, go talk to that guy. And he does. That could not have been comfortable or Peter being told, you're going to go to Cornelius' house. I am? Yes, you are. All of these, though, are in keeping with the callings of these individuals. They're not impulsive or ill-conceived notions. They're things that the Spirit is cultivating in them. The idea that your vocation, and by vocation I don't just mean your job, I mean all of your callings, that's what vocation literally means, is, is calling, is the thing that the Holy Spirit is most likely to upend is 180 degrees off from what we see in God's holy word. Because I am a middle-aged dork, I was recently watching on Hulu a documentary about the origin of the Slinky. Have you seen this? They talk about all different toys. It's fascinating stuff to me, I guess. And I couldn't believe, I mean, you know that it started out as it was supposed to be a military thing, and then he realized it didn't work for that, but it could be a fun toy, and it goes downstairs. And this guy, Richard T. James, made a lot of money on it, starting in 1945 and through the 40s and through the 50s. And in 1960, the company wasn't doing so good, and he started kind of discovering Jesus, rediscovering his faith, and decided that the Spirit had called him to leave his wife and his six kids and a almost bankrupt company in the hands of his wife, just leave. Go to Bolivia and work with Wycliffe Bible translators. And I'm sure he thought that the Spirit had led him to do that. But I suggest he hadn't. Why? Because God's Spirit will never contradict God's Word. God's Word, which tells us to love our wives and, and care for those that God puts under our uh, supervision like our children. You don't walk away from your children. You stay next to your wife and care for them. Now, it turns out that his wife was like a super business boss and she made the company all the more successful, but he could not possibly have known that. He could have stopped making slinkies. He could have kept making slinkies and he wouldn't have been outside of God's will. But by saying, oh, the Holy Spirit just upended my calling, he has shown that he doesn't know what the Holy Spirit's all about. When I, when I do a wedding, uh, near the end, I always, at the, at the uh, wedding rehearsal, I'll say to the bride and groom, listen, there's going to be a point where 
we're all at the end of, of the ceremony. We're all kind of sweaty. Your hands are clammy and you're holding hands. And I'm going to take my big sweaty mitt and put it on top of your hands. And I'm going to pronounce you husband and wife. And it's such a beautiful moment, and I love it so much because it's the beginning of a new calling for both of them. In a similar way, when a person is ordained, when I became a, a reverend, they, they took me aside and people laid hands on me and set me apart for the work of ministry. That's a vocation. That's a calling. And by the way, don't think for a moment that your callings in your life, whether it's to be a mother or a father or a caretaker or a journalist or whatever, are any less important than my calling as a minister. That is medieval nonsense theology. All of these things are important, and we expect the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus elsewhere calls the helper, to help us with our callings. Jesus would not call the Holy Spirit the helper and the comforter, primarily, if his main gig was pulling the rug out from underneath you to make sure you're doing enough crazy stuff. He's a comforter for you, a helper for you in carrying out the callings God has laid on your life. The Holy Spirit will teach us and convict us. That's what we see here. Lead us into all truth. Begins with showing us that we are sinners in need of salvation, in need of a Savior. He then grants us repentance. That's what we see when, when the Gentiles started getting saved. The apostles said, whoa. The Spirit, God, is even granting repentance to the Gentiles. He's granting it to us. And then he gives us the faith and regeneration. And, and he makes us into believers and begins to open our eyes to spiritual truth. Mostly what the Spirit does is amplify God's word to us. Trumpet the gospel right in our face, right in our heart, in a way that is not easy to ignore. In a sense, the role of the prophets in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant community amongst Israel is sort of the same as the role of the Spirit in the New Covenant church in that the prophets were there to say, okay, here's the law. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And when you don't interpret it correctly, we help you understand how to interpret it correctly. When you're not doing it, we kind of let a little fire underneath you to get you doing it. In fact, I've heard them called covenant enforcement policemen. That might be a little bit flippant. But similarly, the Spirit is there to open our eyes, help us understand, and help us to begin to live in keeping with who God has made us when he saved us. Interpreting his word, helping us apply it, helping us grasp and understand it. He does not speak of himself or by his own authority, Jesus says here. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father and from the Son says what he's heard from the Father and from the Son and glorifies Jesus Christ. So that's the Holy Spirit half of this. The second part is what's called the little while teaching. And the words a little while are in this little passage seven times. I won't tell you what the significance of seven is, but it sounds a bit like a riddle when you read it and you wonder, is this something lost in translation? No, it sounds even more tongue twisty when you read it in the Greek. That he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Of course, they looked at each other and said, I don't quite get it. But they could have stopped and thought it through. And we might think they should be able to. It's not a mystery to us. This is Monday, Thursday. In a little while, less than 24 hours, he will be dead and they will not see him. And then after another little while, when he's in the tomb, on the third day, he will rise. He is risen. 
and they will see him again. And we might say, how did they not grasp this? He's, he's prepared them for this. He's taught them about this. But remember two things. First of all, they didn't yet have the Spirit to illuminate. So it's not fair for us to say, well, we get it. Why didn't they? We have the Holy Spirit. Secondly, this is a weird, out there kind of teaching. And those who followed Jesus, hearing him teach as no one else, not as the teachers of the law, but as someone with authority, and saying things like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't really have life in you, or tear down the temple and I can build it again in three days. When you hear him speaking like that, there's got to have been certain things that they just all filed away in, I'll understand this later, that category. And I said, can I put it aside? In fact, in, in Judaism, they would say, when Elijah comes, he will. He will explain that. So they already were kind of used to sort of doing that with difficult concepts. Now with Jesus, like there's so much coming. Whoa, that one I'm just going to put over here. I, I, the text doesn't say that. I'm just assuming that's how people work. And things they didn't quite get in a category of things that they had yet to fully grasp. They would have learned perhaps to, to file them away. But in these two little sermonettes, juxtaposed as they are, I think they highlight for us the hardship that these disciples faced because, yes, they didn't understand it, so there's that. They're confused, and confusion is going to be more disconcerting all the more. But also, they don't have, not only are they lacking their teacher, the Lord Jesus, but they're lacking the Spirit. And so how are they going to deal with such difficulty? They say to each other, what does he mean, this little while? You'll see me no more. And again, a little while and you'll see me and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? By the way, people are still saying, what did Jesus mean by soon? So we can relate to that one. We do not know what he is talking about. They're straightforward about it. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him this. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What do I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. He's preparing them for a time of darkness. No spirit, no Jesus to hang on to, no hope except for thinking back to what he said and understanding it, and that seems to be outside of their ability at this time. Now, I've been in ministry for decades, and I've seen many, many believers go through hardships, and I've seen how with the Spirit's help, they are able to, in Spurgeon's words, kiss the wave that slams them against the Rock of Ages. It'll, it'll throw me into the Rock of Ages, so even though it hurts, I love that wave. And yet, without the Spirit, what do we see happening? The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, devoid of hope. We had hoped, past tense, we had hoped that he was the one, but now it's pretty clear, because he's dead, that he's not you have Peter thinking, well, I guess that whole Messiah thing is a bust. And so when the servant girl says, weren't you one of his disciples? Oh, Jesus of Nazareth, never heard of him. I'm going to go back to my boat and fish some more. Like none of this ever happened. This little while is very lonely and very, very dark. And all of it is, I mean, in our context, yes, the cross is a sign of great victory and triumph but to them the cross would be a sign of great shame and defeat here's a little cross we went to uh, alex and i uh, and our, our boys went to the plymouth congregational church yesterday because they've closed their doors and we went through and we were able to 
uh, take some of the things that, that they had been using for ministry and carry on with them. And they wanted to make sure all of us got one of these crosses, which I thought was really nice. And as I was looking at it, it occurred to me anew how absurd it is that this is our go-to symbol. Why is it so important to us? Because this is how our God died. If you didn't know anything about Christianity and heard that, you would think we were bonkers. There was a, a miniseries about Jesus' life when I was in college. Uh, it was called Jesus, the Epic Miniseries. And Gary Oldman played Pilate. And I remember a very clever bit of dialogue where he's being briefed on like what's going on in his realm. And he's reminded, Passover's coming up. And he says, what is that again? And they kind of explain it to him. And he, and he laughs. He says, what a weird group of people. Imagine celebrating that your own God didn't kill you. And from a Roman point of view, not seeing the beautiful salvific meaning of all this, I could see that being absurd. But all the more absurd is celebrating that our God was himself killed. But we're told to boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. Because had he stayed in the tomb, we would not be holding up crosses as our symbol. There may still be some Jesus followers, but this wouldn't be what they were all about. They'd be about his ethics, his morals, his insights. But because on the third day he was not there, he is risen. We can hold up the cross as a sign of the greatest of all victories. We know that after a little while, he walked out of that tomb and everything changed. What made them weep now brought them joy. What used to bring them happiness now has no pull on it anymore. They have new affections. Their sorrow has turned to joy. And that's what he says next. I stopped mid-sentence here. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Notice he doesn't say your sorrow will end and some joy will begin. No, your sorrow will turn to joy. The very thing that caused the sorrow will now, with some new insight, be causing you joy. All the things that you'd lined up in that category of understand later in a rolling away of the, the, the uh, big stone in front of the tomb and a flash of light and a, a trumpet and a, and a shout of the angel, suddenly it'll all make sense. It'll all fall into place. And rather than swapping out your old sorrow for some new joy, he tells them your sorrow will turn to joy. The same thing that caused you sorrow. The dark hour on Thursday night when Jesus said, this is your hour when darkness reigns to the mob. The dark hour on Friday when between noon and 3 p.m. The, the sun was blackened. All of that, Jesus' death, the nail, the crown of thorns, the suffering, the crowd demanding that Barabbas be released well, the only sinless man to ever live is condemned. All of it, which is what made them so sorrowful, is now what gives them joy. And he, he gives the illustration of a woman giving birth to a child. I cannot speak from experience on this, but I witnessed it. And my hand was crushed. Not the same kind of pain, but I don't want to discount it entirely. But I remember at one point walking out to get a, like a Pop-Tart and it had been hours and hours and hours, and I called my mom up. I said, Mom, I don't know how much longer I can stand there and watch her suffering. This is not fair. How long is this going to take? I hate this so much. I don't even know the kid, and I kind of already don't like him. He's, he's hurting my wife. And you know what? Completely apart from any reference to John 16, she said, 
listen, she won't really remember that. I don't really remember that all that much because the joy of having a child, it displaces it. It pushes out. Now, I have met some mothers who will say twice a week, well, I was in labor with you for 17 hours, but sure, eat the last of the Cheez-Its. I'm sure they're out there. And no, God doesn't erase anyone's brains, but I was doing a little reading on like a halo effect, especially if a mother holds her baby right away. It begins to kind of fade into the background, even though in general, great pain will lock memories in. It's interesting. Again, that same thing that caused the mother sorrow, the birth of the child, with all the pain that accompanies, once the baby's placed in her arms is the thing giving her joy. And the depth of the pain and suffering and sorrow is matched by the height of the joy. Now, this would be such an easy message to preach as an Easter sermon if I could guarantee for you that all of your little whiles would be three days max. But I can't. And usually they're not. Often they're not anyway. If you want any remembrance of that, think back only to 2020 when you didn't know how long things were going to drag on and darkness was going to continue and bleak news and all these headlines. 15 days. No, I mean three weeks. No, I mean three months. No, I mean... And we're going... I was thinking, I can't, I don't, I could do three months. I can't do forever. I can't do unknown. I need to know what I'm dealing with. I want more information. I was kind of an unpleasant guy in that way. And in the same way, we demand to know of God. In fact, read Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You could read that simply as a lament, a complaint, but you also could read it as a demand for some information. No, seriously. How long? Just tell me. I can trust you to have a sovereign plan if I know what exactly what it is. I can wait patiently on you if I know exactly how long I'll have to wait. Very human approach. These are the Easter doctrines you can't really bring up on Easter morning proper because you would be, in the words of St. Gregory Nazianzus, a total buzzkill. But they're important Easter doctrines all the same. And we have to be careful of the spirit of Job's friends, too, when we enter into a little while where it's dark and it's hard to remember what Jesus' words even mean. You remember how they gathered around him and implied, it's all about you, that's why you're suffering, you've done something wrong, you need to fix it. You should be living a victorious life if you're a Christian, right? Not one of grief or defeat or suffering. You are too blessed to be stressed. Absolutely. You remember the scriptures say rejoice in the Lord always. If you should rejoice in the Lord always, even a little while of suffering is too much, isn't it? And now this, we're coming up on a month of you being discouraged and struggling with doubt and with fear and with anger. Why? That must mean you don't really have faith or you don't have very good faith. There must be something you're doing wrong. You need to identify the problem. It's your mix. You made it. Fix it. On Easter morning, yes, the angels said, woman, why are you weeping? Because there was no reason to be weeping. He was risen. But other than that, there is no time I can think of in the scripture when someone is admonished not to cry, not to weep, when something is sad and hard and there is lamenting going on. I, don't, I, I can't think of a single time. Why are you weeping? It's usually self-evident. There is a time to weep, a time to mourn. Jesus makes that clear. It's the world is broken, and so naturally we weep. It makes sense. There are times when we say to ourselves, well, 
trials, they refine us just like fire refines gold. And I believe it, but it's not really doing it for me. There are times when we say to ourselves, this too shall pass. But remember, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never. It endures forever. But the words ring empty and we can do nothing but weep. And when that happens, the best thing to do, I find, is weep. Christ himself weeps several times throughout the Gospels. When John the Baptist dies, when Lazarus dies, when he looks down at Jerusalem and says, oh, how I want you to repent, but your hearts are so hard. I wanted to gather you together like a mother hen gathers all of her chicks under her wings, but you would not. And do you really think these are the only times that Jesus wept? Certainly not. If he, if he weeps when Lazarus dies, do you really think he didn't weep when Joseph died? He lived a full human life. Undoubtedly, he was sorrowful. He lamented. He faced hardships. We know this. And often, I'm sure, he had this notion, because he quotes and claims so many of these psalms and fulfills them, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We heard that in Sunday school this morning, didn't we? But keep listening. This is the rest of the psalm. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's a short psalm, and perhaps a good one to commit to memory to recite to yourself when you are facing difficult times. Yes, the Spirit convicts us of sin, but Jesus never calls him the convictor. He calls him the comforter. He calls him the helper. He calls him the advocate, the paraclete. And when we face these sorts of things, and it's not Easter morning, and we're not wearing our nicest clothes and still glistening with the, the meat sweats from a, a glorious breakfast together in the social hall, surreptitiously munching jelly beans during the service, and everything is not sunny and happy and content, and everything as it should be when it's Tuesday afternoon and the sky is gray and life itself feels like a burden, Jesus still offers these two wonderful salves for our wounds. He promises that things will get better, that to put it maybe a little bit too cutely, the last thing is never the worst thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. In fact, if you're following Jesus, the best thing is the last thing, and it goes on forever. And secondly, he promises the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will be with you. You know, you think of people trying to do things alone and feeling lonely in it, and think only if I had somebody with me to, to shoulder this what if you had the God of the universe, the third person of the Holy Trinity indwelling you? If you are in Christ, you do. Be filled with the Spirit. You cannot know how long your sorrow or suffering will be, other than that it will be a little while in the grand scheme of things. And you will know that it is not permanent if you are in Christ. And you know that, for a fact, your suffering will turn to joy. In the end... That joy cannot be taken from you. That's how he ends this little sermonette. You will have joy that cannot be taken. It cannot be stolen from you. And this tells us something about the nature of joy. It's different from happiness. 
I've probably talked many times about this over the years, but it's a very important distinction, so I'll say it again. Happiness comes from happenings, happenstance. What's happening in your life determines whether you're happy or not. I'm very, very happy in this moment because X, Y, Z. Joy endures despite what's happening. And joy comes from deep within us. It is found and rooted in the Holy Spirit indwelling us, our hearts being made new by the work of the Spirit through the blood of Christ. This tells us something about how we can be anchored even during difficult times, even when the storms are blowing all around us. Everyone struggles, but again, remember these two things. Ultimately, the Lord will turn all your sorrow to joy and wipe away every tear from your eye. And secondly, we, unlike those poor disciples, have the Holy Spirit with us when we face difficulties and trials. And we remember that it was after their suffering and after their little while and after their morning turned to joy and their eyes were open and they understood everything in the understand later column that the disciples were dragged before the Sanhedrin and threatened and mocked and beaten and then sent back out with express instructions. Listen, if you do it again, if you speak in his name again, you will regret it. And the fact that after their joy had been made complete and their sorrow had turned to joy, they looked at each other and high-fived and celebrated and rejoiced that they had been found worthy to suffer for the name, it makes perfect sense. Death cannot steal that joy. Nothing can steal that joy from us. We have the knowledge the disciples lacked on that Monday Thursday. We read these words, they don't seem like a puzzle. We look back and we see that on Easter, on the first day of the week, when Jesus rose from the dead, the idea of waiting on the Lord and the concept of hope came together and like kissed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus elsewhere uses the image of birth pangs to talk about the coming of the end. Aaron read for you Revelation 21 earlier. I've been referencing that again and again through this Eastertide. But the, the coming of the end is going to come as birth pangs, which means, by the way, when bad things are happening in the headlines and someone comes out and says, you see, this is it. It's only going to get worse. And then Jesus is going to come back and all these other things are going to fall into place. Here's 23 reasons why it's going to happen in 2023. Remember, birth pangs come in waves, and there have been many of them, starting way back in the first century, and then there will be a time of relative peace, and then another one. But someday there will be one that is so strong that it signals the, the actual birth, the consummation of the kingdom. Christ will return. The sky will be rolled up as a scroll. Every eye will see him. There will be a trumpet blast, and Christ himself will descend. The dead in Christ will be raised first, and then the rest of us caught up into the sky as well, and we will be with him forever. And ultimately, when we are spending eternity in the presence of our king, and we think back to that vapor that was our earthly life, that moment of mist, and the days of difficulty and suffering and sorrow that are kind of peppered throughout it, these will be a fading, foggy memory that only serve to reinforce and enhance the eternal joy that we have. It says God will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more death or sickness or sorrow. And we could add to that, there will be no more little whiles. When we look around and see nothing but darkness and we read the words and say, even with the Spirit, I'm having a hard time connecting with them. They're not doing much for my soul. Take comfort in Jesus' promises. After a little while, it will come to an end. After a little while, your sorrow will turn to joy. 
And even now, we have the Spirit, the Comforter, in our midst, in ourselves. These things bring us comfort. These things bring us joy. These things change everything. When the empty tomb was discovered, suddenly there was a whole new world of possibility for these disciples who a moment earlier had been in the depths of sorrow. Suddenly now, there is joy. Sometimes it happens like that, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it takes a long time to claw out of that dark night of the soul. But remember, the Spirit is with you, and promises of Jesus are all yes and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a passage in which the Lord is preparing and comforting his disciples. And Lord, it now prepares and comforts us as well, reminding us that we will face trouble. In this life, in this world, we will have troubles. But as your son Jesus reminded us, we should take heart for he has overcome the world. Lord, as we prepare to take the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper, I ask that you would remind us of these truths and you would prepare us and equip us to go back out into a world where there is an awful lot of darkness, where the little whiles seem to be getting an awful lot longer. Pray, Lord, that you will, we pray that you will give us a, a zeal to bring salt and light out into the midst of darkness, that you would not let us give up on, this, on, on the people around us, not let us just hand them over to the darkness they choose, but rather, Lord, that we would be filled with a calling knowing the Holy Spirit will help us to carry it out, to bring the gospel to each and every person that we have an opportunity to interact with, to bring the good news that there is salvation in no other name, but there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen.